this is the second Sunday after Epiphany, and we're in a mini green season now, but it's different than the long green season in the sense that perhaps the major focus of the green Sundays are about discipleship. This is about two things uh, that I'll mention uh, this Sunday and throughout. We're probably going to celebrate all of the Sundays after Epiphany this year because Easter is late. It's on the 20th of April. So we'll have about eight Sundays of Epiphany. And the focus of the the Sundays after Epiphany um, is on the person and work of Christ and how you and I, as uh, desirous of being transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love in the world, make manifest that reality that in this man's words and in this man's works we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. So Christmas was about the celebration of the presence of Christ to the church. Epiphany is about the manifestation of Christ to the world. And so for Western Christians on Epiphany proper, we read the gospel of the visit of the three kings to the infant Jesus, which we believe is symbolic of the universal significance of the incarnation and that these three kings represented kings from all of the known world. And on the Sunday after Epiphany, we celebrate the baptism of Christ. The Eastern Church starts on Epiphany with the baptism of Christ, but we sort of make a theological predicate when we have the visit of the three magi uh, to the infant Jesus. So one of the things that's going to loom large in our talking will be baptism is going to keep coming up. Uh, it's, again, we have John's version today or description of uh, Jesus' baptism and what occurred, which is slightly different than the uh, synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so we have baptism is something that will then assist in the segue into Lent. Uh, Lent anciently was the preparatory season for those who were going to be baptized on Easter. And for the first four centuries of Christian history, the normative age for baptism was adulthood. And you had to enter into a catechumenate process that lasted three years. So they took this extremely seriously. Constantine converted to Christianity, but he didn't get baptized until he was on his deathbed. So people uh, had a different way of understanding that. We, we uh, believe that baptism needs to be offered to everyone, in our, and in our tradition, we have always baptized infants and young children. I think that uh, the, that practice got really rolling when, you know, when Constantine declares Christianity not only the only legal religion, not the, the only uh, legal, it was the only religion in the Roman Empire. And so once all the adults are in, now you, you're, you're stuck, aren't you? So uh, new little Christians, we're going to baptize and do that quickly. So I'm going to preach on all three of the readings. And all three of them have to do with God's plan and purpose being centered in Jesus. Jesus as a servant. And the universality of the church and its importance. 
In the reading from Isaiah, we have something that biblical scholars call the second servant song. And in preparing the sermon this week, I came across, this is the kind of stuff you you, uh, do in seminary, and people used to say to me, you shouldn't say this to people, it's just too boring or it's not interesting. You know, don't do this. But there's a textual problem here in in Hebrew. And the way in which this story goes, it's not absolutely clear. You have to do some sorting out as to whether the suffering servant that is described in Isaiah here is a person, an individual, or whether it refers to Israel, corporate. So there's some people that tie themselves in knots about all of this and uh, worry and worry. So here's David Brewer's solution to this. It's both. That's my view. That for, for uh, ancient Israel, we're talking about the prophetic work. In this case, Isaiah, who has believes that he has been called and will be the suffering servant. And also, this is a word to Israel. You know, each one of us um, has the responsibility, if necessary, to exercise a prophetic office in big and small ways in our life. So this is really easy to say and hard to do. Speaking truth to power in big, dramatic things is one way to think about this, but sometimes also standing for principle in things that are important in your families, in uh, our friendships, in the way in which we uh, relate to people that we do business with, that sometimes it's important for us to Uh, remind ourselves that we need to keep our prophetic edge. Now, all of us know people who have honed that prophetic edge to a point where we're practically beside ourselves (laughs) with hearing hearing from them. (laughs) But that doesn't mean we shouldn't think about that and realize that it's an important thing to do. The early Christians will read passages from Isaiah like this. And they will say, this is predictive of Jesus. And Jesus is the suffering servant. He's a servant in the sense of his self-giving and his willingness to extend. And the expression of unconditional love, forgiveness, and acceptance. But he is also a suffering servant who will suffer and be killed. And it's a reminder that people who maintain a prophetic edge often do suffer. I was listening to a lecture... Uh, a, a few days ago where uh, the, the, the lecturer opened and said, if you live long enough, you will suffer. So he said, I'm opening my talk with this good news. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all of us, all of us have, have to, had to uh, realize that and have gone through it. But you know, um, I was also reading about this this week, and the fact is that... Um, Probably the suffering that's the most difficult for most of us is not the great and grand stuff, the enormous uh, agony. It's the quotidian suffering. You know, it's John Paul Sartre. Hell is other people. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Doug Reese a few years ago gave me a bumper sticker. I asked him to do it. I think it's called... Uh, Committee for an Idiot-Free America. (laughs) (laughs) 
You know, and there's a certain amount of suffering uh, that goes behind having to put up with other people's foibles. Uh, except that oftentimes, if we if we haven't got much self insight, we don't have any real realization that that's what we also inflict on other people. And so it's important for us to be aware uh, aware of that. So in Isaiah, we have uh, Jesus as servant, suffering and otherwise, and by extension, a template that tells us that we need to exercise some species of servanthood in our lives. And I think we can all point to things that we where we are. We're, we're uh, performing what the, the old dean of Neshota used to say my first year, the duties of state. Get up and brush your teeth. But that's something that we, we need to do. Paul today is opening uh, the letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, so we're reading the, the introduction uh, to the letter. But here, implicit in what he's saying, he's speaking about the church. This is his word to the church. Um, this is a personal testimony. I became an Episcopalian when I was 18. I hadn't been baptized. And one of the things that was extremely impressive to me uh, was that this was the church. I felt like I was part of the church. And what I mean when I say that is that it, I was now part of something that was way bigger than me. And it was not dependent on whether I agreed or disagreed. So I don't want to make a commercial message for uh, all of the doctrines and dogmas of traditional Christianity as being the way in. But they certainly help uh, if they're rightly understood. And that the task of Christian people, both personally and corporately, is to continuously work on how we understand ourselves and our common life together. That that's an important thing that we need to do. And Paul speaks about that, not the focus on the, the dogmas, but says that we have been prepared by the grace of God in order to meet the challenges and the demands he requires of us to be church. Barbara Harris, uh, the retired suffragan bishop of Massachusetts, uh, opens her sermons, uh, at least the, the half dozen times I've heard her preach, by saying, hello, church. That's what she says when she begins her sermon. And so she's reinforcing the idea that we are together church, you know. I also believe, some don't, but I believe that any spirituality worth, it, worth its salt institutionalizes. And I think that that can be historically demonstrated in some ways. We're in an age now where people would prefer to think outside that idea or that there have been so many bad things that have been done within the church that we simply have to find out uh, something else or do something else. The kind of internal flexibility that has been demonstrated, if you read, read history at all, well, you'll discover that that has always been present, even at times that seem to be very uh, restrictive. And I was writing this, I was thinking of when I was a little kid, there was a television show called Dr. Kildare. Oh, yeah. Remember Dr. Kildare? Mm -hmm. This is about dogma and doctrine and all of this sort of stuff. Dr. Kildare in one episode was asked to go be the doctor with, uh, at a, uh, a, 
a camp, you know, summer camp for kids. And he was at the summer camp, and one of the children had an accident or something happened, and they couldn't breathe. And so uh, he had to have a tracheotomy. The kid had to have a, a, a slit put here so that he could breathe until they figured out how they were going to have him breathe the normal way. So they're in the tent, and he's with another doctor. And they're in there holding the gas light over this kid who's lying there. And Dr. Kildare has the scalpel out, and he reaches down, and he makes the cut. And he says, that vein is not supposed to be there. <laughs> and the other doctor says, on him, it is. <laughs> right? You know, I know a little bit about this. It's not true in my case, but some people's appendix is back here. It's not here. Back here. So on them it is. Right? So if you stop thinking about uh, or, or think that everything has to happen in this way or we must fit the way we think into this, that's not what being church is. Being church is feeling that you're part of the people of God, that it's something that's bigger than you are, and that together... We make the church. Uh, Reginald Fuller many years ago said about this passage with Paul, he said, uh, Paul is at pains to say that the church with a capital C is not the sum of the churches with a small c, but each church with a small c embodies the church with a capital C. So I think that's a, a useful way for us to think about that. Uh, finally, in John's Gospel, we have the end of uh, getting to the end of chapter 1, and we're talking about uh, Jesus' baptism, or it's described a certain way in John's Gospel. The Holy Spirit landing on Jesus is still there, but uh, he's characterized as the Lamb of God, as the Messiah. And, uh, you know, Messiah, by the way, in Greek is Christos. It means the anointed one. So those are interchangeable words in a, in a way. And in the footnotes, if you read the Bible, you'll see that that's what, what it says about what the, what the name means. But we understand that Jesus in some way um, is a person who expresses the fullness of our humanity and the presence of divinity. It begins the conversation about his person, who he is, the Lamb of God in this particular case and so forth, and what his work is. In this man's words and in this man's works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And by extension, through seeing his mighty works, listening to what he said, being in the church which transmits this tradition, we have come to see that we can do that too. We are not God, but our true self is God. We are in some way able to see now how we live into that. So this week, give thanks for the, your baptism and give thanks for the ability to labor to make St. Luke's Church with a capital C. Amen. <laughs>